Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. As always, I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. How are you guys? How's your day going? How's your week going? Uh, if you're listening to this in its first airing on Hebrew Nation for the week, uh, then happy Wednesday to you. Uh, if it's Thursday, Friday, or Sunday, then Happy Thursday, Friday, and Sunday to you. <laughs> I hope your your week is going well, and I hope your day is going well. And uh, shalom, shalom to every single one of you. If it's your first time catching Image Bearers Radio, I always want to give a welcome uh, to anybody who's just uh, letting the station play and hearing us for the first time. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in and for listening to this conversation. And uh, between me and you, hopefully you take it and make it even more of a conversation. It's the way I hope it works. And uh, if you're uh, uh, you know, been listening, then always, of course, as I always say, though, the only thing better than someone listening the first time uh, is someone coming back and listening again. So I very much appreciate our longtime listeners and uh, those, of you, those of you guys who stuck with us for, uh, I guess, a little over a year, right about uh, almost a year, maybe. I don't know. I have to check my calendar. It was right after Sukkot last year, I think, when we started IBR. IBR. So um, thank you guys for our patience again as we kind of work through this weird schedule we're getting through. I think things are getting back to normal. Um, and But then just when I think that, there's another storm, another hurricane <laughs> brewing uh, in the, the, the southern Gulf. So uh, we're watching another one right now. I think it's uh, Ada, I think. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I can't keep up. But um, we are trying to get some normalcy back in our schedule. So thank you guys for your patience. And I appreciate you sticking with us as we, we work through this, these kind of weird and awkward times. As always, I want to invite any of you who are listening um, to join our Shabbat live stream services. Uh, I pastor Out of Ashes Ministries in, uh, in DeRitter, Louisiana, and uh, we live stream our services every single Shabbat and uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, Central. And I would say standard at daylight time, but I can't remember which one it is. So whichever one we're in right now, it's always at 10 o'clock central. Um, and we'd love to have you you uh, come in and join us. If you're looking for a, a fellowship, uh, maybe you're just new to the, the Torah walk and kind of the Hebraic understandings of the faith, uh, or maybe you just find yourself in a place where there just is nobody. There's so many um, of you lovely people out there that I know just don't have any fellowship around you. And uh, we're, we're fortunate enough, Hashem has blessed us to be able to, to uh, have a live streaming capability, and we're trying to improve that all the time. And so uh, we would love for you to join us. We live stream to our website at outofashesministries.org slash live. Uh, we also simulcast to Facebook at Out of Ashes Ministries and on YouTube at Out of Ashes Ministries. Um, so any one of those places, we also have a cool mobile app, that you can download. You can find out information about that on our website. And so you can watch us even on the go. So if you're on Facebook, uh, jump in the chat, say, hey, you know, tell us where you're from. We'd love to hear from you. Um, to all of you that, that do that from a, from a weekly basis, thank you guys so much for, uh, you know, for saying hey and commenting and all that. I love, you know, 
high views are one thing, um, but high comments are a different ballgame altogether, and that's really super encouraging. So thank you all all so, so very, very, very much. So before we get into uh, this week's episode, uh, I would like, as we always do, to just spend a moment asking the Father to invade our space and help us to, uh, to come out on the other side of this conversation looking a little bit more like Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we love you and we desperately want to fulfill the call that you have given us to bear your image, to look like you, to talk like you, to act like you, to reach out to others and, and to engage with you as a partner in as you partner with us in repairing this world. So Father, bless our time together today through your Messiah. Amen. So if you've been following along, we have been doing a kind of a 30,000 foot view flyover of the Gospels. Uh, We have come a long, long way since uh, a year ago, uh, beginning in Bereshit, beginning in Genesis. Uh, We walked through Genesis, through the desert. Um, We kind of skipped the histories and the prophets, um, which we'll come back to. Uh, as we kind of walk through the Gospels a little bit, we'll come back and touch on some different things that we missed. Um, I skipped those kind of intentionally because I wanted to spend the first several months kind of giving a, a groundwork and a foundation and then knowing that whenever we got to the Gospels that we were going to come back and, and clean up some of that stuff and, and talk about Isaiah some, Jeremiah, um, the history Joshua, Judges, all those kinds of things. So uh, we will be kind of coming back and picking some of those things up. But right now we are looking at the Gospels. A couple of weeks ago we, we looked at Matthew and understanding some kind of ground rules as we read the Gospels. A um, couple of things that I'll, I asked you to do, and, and if you're first, for a first time listening, I want to ask you to do as we walk through and talk through the Gospels. Um, Rabbi David Foreman from Aleph Beta, uh, he's got just so much good stuff. I would encourage you, if you're not listening to Rabbi Foreman uh, or reading his books, he's just got some incredible, uh, incredible information, and uh, I love his heart and the way he teaches. Um, but he talks about this thing called the lullaby effect, right? And it's especially true for us as believers as we read the Gospels. Um, we can be very susceptible to the lullaby effect, which means like we've read this before. We just read it and we don't really pay attention to what we're reading. We're just reading words because in our mind's eye, we know already what it says. So we're just reading it kind of out of habit. And so I want us to try to to push against that lullaby effect. I think we can we can do that if we do some active reading. Uh, and, and, and we can like on purpose, uh, you know, make sure that we're not we're not just kind of lulling ourselves to sleep with the same stories that we think we know. So in an effort to kind of help do that, I want I want you to to take um, the 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 readings of the Gospels that you are comfortable with, the way you read the Gospels that even maybe since coming into Torah, maybe you've read the Gospel accounts different a different way, which is great. Uh, but even that, I want to kind of take and put off to the side a little bit, put it on a shelf. I'm not saying get rid of your, you know, your, our old understandings or any of that kind of thing. For sure not, because a lot of the things that we were taught, you know, in a sense were correct, uh, the heart of Yeshua and those kinds of things. Um, but I, I want us to just kind of shelf those things for our time in the Gospels 
and um, and let's read with a a new set of ears, a new set of eyes. Let's do some active reading, and and let's let's kind of search to understand a little bit deeper under the surface uh, of the way we we kind of understand things or have understood things. So there's kind of the the lullaby effect. So one of the things that we said when we began the the gospel flyover is that we were not going to try to harmonize the Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are typically known as the synoptic Gospels, um, because generally um, the, the kind of accepted overall you know, scholarly approach and, and traditional even evangelical uh, understanding is that very likely Mark was written first, kind of written in haste, um, and, you know, just as a kind of like, we don't want to forget this stuff, so we're just going to, we're going to write down a skeleton. And that was kind of Mark's deal. And then Matthew came along and kind of filled in some of Mark's details. And then Luke kind of came along and said, no, you guys, you got, you know, you got some good stuff, but it's all out of whack. It's all out of order. So, um, and then, and then later on, John came and did kind of his own thing. Um, I particularly, uh, you know, listening to Marty Solomon of the Bema Discipleship Podcast, which I encourage you all to go and subscribe to. Um, I, after listening to Marty talk about how he thinks the Gospels were put together and when they were written, it gives, gives us some permission to ask questions and to think about it a little bit differently. So we know that um, Matthew and Mark are very similar in a lot of ways, and they probably um, used a, another resource or another source called Q. Um, that Q source is something that scholars have identified because there's so much commonality in their Gospels. And um, so we, we have these, this idea of synoptic Gospels as, in, as if they're all trying to work together to tell the same story uh, and tell it the same way, just with different details. And I, I want to push against that. I, wanna, I want us to, to not disagree with that fully, but I want to think another way about it. And think about the fact that just as we said in Genesis, uh, that, that God entrusted his authority— in man, in, in human authors, right? In, in human authors. And, and the, the authority of the, the scripture comes from God, no doubt. There's no question about that. However, from a practical standpoint, we understand that, that Hashem used human authors. And so he chose people who he could trust to pass on his word uh, the way he wanted it told. And, and he left it to those people, um, you know, Moshe and, and Joshua and you know, the, the prophets, and, and, then, and then we get to the gospel writers. And so Matthew, Matthew's gospel or Matthew's gospel account um, is chosen for a certain reason. Matthew was chosen for a certain reason. Mark's was chosen for a certain reason. Luke's and John's. And, and so the, we have to give respect and we have to honor the authoritative voice of the writer. Um, and so we talked about a big word called agenda, right? Each gospel writer or each account has an agenda. We talked about Matthew's agenda being that of the mumser or the outsider, those on the fringes, um, and that and, and a, a kind of a polemic against the elite, the religious elite, um, whether that's Pharisee or Sadducee or Essene or whatever, and saying that these people that you've looked at and said that, you know, well, they definitely are not, not, you know, in covenant. They're not on God's side. Are actually, the ones Yeshua wants to go after and wants to say, no, these are the ones that, that understand what it means to, to and, and can appreciate what it means being in covenant. And you guys are so, you know, bound up in your religious stuff that sometimes you lose sight of that. And so there's this in-out thing uh, and this fringe versus kind of core, core message in Matthew's gospel. We talked last week about Luke's, uh, Mark's gospel, excuse me, <laughs> about Mark's gospel. I'll get it. We'll just, 
did you did your mom or grandmother uh if you had like siblings or cousins you ever over and like are you know at your grandparents house and and somebody's you know grandma mama is mad at somebody so she calls like every grandchild's name before she gets to yours and then that's or your mom maybe have done that if you got a bunch of siblings i'm sorry that's we'll we'll just call all the gospels we'll get to the one that we're talking about eventually sorry for that little sidetrack uh so last week we talked about mark mark's gospel account and mark being a Jew, but writing to Romans. So Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. Mark being a Jew that was writing to a, Ro- a Roman audience, and a Roman audience very specifically. Um, and I want to make that point because when we get to John, there's some other things at play there. Uh, and so we talked about Mark's gospel, and and the theme of it, I said, uh, in my mind, is kind of the victor, right? Christus victor, um, where Mark is hitting kind of all of the, the pillars of Hellenism, and he's showing Yeshua, if it's an education, he's showing Yeshua as the, the best uh, and the most incredible teacher. And the, and the crowds were amazed, right? Um, Mark's gospel talks about Yeshua as the great healer, right? He's, of all of the, the Asclepian priests, the, the, the Roman uh, health, you know, they were all were tied to temples and things. And so all of these medicinal priests, uh, Yeshua is the great healer. He, he's, the, he's the best one out there. Um, he's a great competitor, you know, in debates and in, in arguments and things. And so Mark's gospel really to a Roman audience, it's fast paced. Immediately Yeshua did this and immediately and then straightforward and then, you know, forthwith or whatever the, the wording is. It's fast paced and it's short because Romans want, they don't want all, they don't want to have to search and dig for the, the narrative treasures and all those things. They want just the point. Give me the facts, Jack. Uh, and in that way, we like the gospel of Mark a lot because that's very much how many of us are. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't have time to search and dig for the treasures that I know are there. That, that's great. But like, give me a five-minute devotion, right? Give me, a, give, me a, give me a two-minute verse of the day. Like, that's what I need, and then I can go about my business. And that appeals to us. And so Mark's gospel has a very specific audience. And thankfully, thankfully it does, because many of us turn to the gospel of Mark for that reason. So we talked about Mark and in and paralleled kind of the um, the Roman coronation uh, rituals and went through those de- kind of detail by detail. And then I wanted to finish Mark today and jump into and talk about Luke a little bit um, because we ran out of time last week and there's something really interesting about Mark's gospel and the way that it ends. And um, so we have we have the the coronation, the kind of Roman coronation ritual with the guards gathered at the Praetorium and the emperor's dressed and uh, given a crown, etc. And then he's led, um, you know, led down uh, down the road to a Capitoline Hill, and um, the, you know, where there he's offered wine with myrrh, uh, which is really, really the best of the best wine available. And, and all these things. And then we read through the last, uh, through the, 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 the crucifixion of Yeshua and, and how these things that Mark writes follows that template, that Roman coronation template to a T. And so you can go back to last week and, and check that out and listen to that. But it follows it, it with amazing, amazing accuracy. And so I want to be really careful to make sure that you understand that reading the gospel of Mark, let's say, this way, is not we're not changing the gospel and we're not saying that mark um we're not saying that that mark made it seem like um yeshua is 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 doing this thing or or that mark is changing what happened at the crucifixion uh to match the roman template that's not what we're saying 
We're not saying that Mark changed the events. What we're saying is that Mark is highlighting the different parts of that crucifixion journey to speak in a language that the Romans would understand. I hope that makes I hope that makes sense. He's he's targeting their perspective and framing things in a context that they that they understand. So I, I want to be really careful about that because I know it can seem like you're saying, oh well, you know, what really happened then? What is the historical facts? And what I would argue is that um, we, we have the historical facts recorded in the Gospels, and that's not the question. The question is, how are those facts about Yeshua as Messiah, as the new king, bringing a new kingdom, how are those things communicated in a way where different audiences can understand? Because the, even as important as the facts on the ground are the audience that is going to receive them and how we tell those stories to different audiences. Listen, we're in campaign as we record this, uh, this recording on Monday, um, voting is tomorrow, right? Election day is Tuesday, tomorrow. Um, and a candidate that is running in the Midwest is going to speak differently than a candidate that is running in New York. Uh, someone who is running in California is not going to talk to their audience the same way they do as someone who's running in South Louisiana, right? It's just, it's a, it matters who your audience is. And so I just, we're just highlighting these things because I believe every, every gospel author has an agenda. And I think we ought to respect, uh, the, the purpose that they have in writing their gospel account the way that they do. So, um, we go through the coronation ritual, and without a doubt, Yeshua, through Mark's gospel, has been shown as the victor. He has been shown as the best of everything. He is, he is always the one that comes out um, on top. And to a Roman audience, that's really important because they were about power and influence and, and position and, right, and all these things. And so at the, at, if we think about Mark's gospel in that light, well, then a... a a Messiah who is the, the who is a king who is the one who is always the best, best teacher, best healer, best competitor, best, you know, all these things. He's the best, the best, the best. To have him die at the end a shameful death to a Roman audience doesn't doesn't pique their interest. It doesn't it doesn't satisfy what they're looking for. And not to say that Yeshua didn't experience shame on the cross and all those things. Absolutely. But to a Roman audience. He still has to be the victor. He, he, they want to see Yeshua in the light of the overcoming king. And so as Mark kind of details this Roman coronation, he's actually turning the shame of the cross, the, 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 the thing that happened as Yeshua takes on the, the, you know, the penalty of the sin of the world and, and, and redeems us by his blood. He takes that picture, that, that event, and he turns it into Yeshua's coronation as the new king. As the new king, and that's super, super duper important. Mark's gospel is to show, is to tell the Romans, you think Caesar is king? You think he's God? You think that he's, he walks in this divine uh, you know, office and, and even is a part of the divine himself? Well, I've got a king that I want to tell you about, and he's the true savior of the world. He's the true, he's the true divine divine being that walks on this earth and that is that is full of power and has the the power of life and death in his very hands and his very words i want to tell you about the king that was from that that was that is always going to uh, to rescue and redeem and is always going to be victorious over his enemies i want to tell you about this king and this kingdom that he's bringing because i want you to be a part of it and he wants you to be a part of it so 
to have Messiah die this, this shameful death is just kind of like, you know, goes from this really high mark, high intensity, high, quick moving, fast pace, you know, winning, winning, winning. And then all of a sudden it just kind of falls flat. So Mark, in, in framing Yeshua's last days and, and crucifixion as a, as, a, as a coronation into the new kingdom is both a turn, a twist for the Roman mind, and it also satisfies that, that understanding that they have of the victor. And so I want to uh, read beginning in chapter 16 today. And chapter 16 is not very long, so we, we're going to read through it really quickly. And I want to discuss how Mark ends his gospel. And I want to discuss some, some really interesting points here. So uh, in chapter 16 of Mark, uh, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Yeshua's body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Yeshua the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Kepha and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And then verse 8 says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, Depending on which translation you have and which, which Bible you're reading from, you may have a uh, continuation of chapter 16 and, and some verses uh, that may be in italics or they may be noted in some kind of way. And you probably have notes uh, at the end of or at the bottom. If you have a, a study Bible, you have notes saying that, well, some of these verses were added later. Some of these were not in the earliest manuscripts, etc., etc., etc. There's a lot of different debate and opinions about what happened and, and why they were added or, or what manuscripts they were found in, a piece here and a piece there and all those, those different kinds of things. But there's one thing that we can know for sure. Even in an English reading of Mark, you read that verse 8 and it's like, whoa. And then you go on to verse 9 and the, the, the feeling changes right in the middle of the chapter. Um, scholars, of which I'm not one <laughs> and, and don't even know Greek, but we'll, we'll say that the Greek is even different in this next part. Now, I don't want to draw any conclusions to that. That's not the point of why I bring it up. The point is, let's just say for argument's sake that Mark ended his gospel account in chapter 16, verse 8. All right? So what do we have? We have this victorious king all through the gospel of Mark. He's moving and shaking. He's the best. He's, he's taken over the world. It's just incredible, right? He's amazing people. He's astonishing. He goes through this really unique and different in the Roman mind coronation ceremony where actually he's, cor he, he's coronated through his death as the new king. And, and, and then he's crucified, right? And you have his followers, these, these precious women that go to, to anoint his body. And in the last verse, it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went and went out and fled from the tomb. They saw, uh, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of Mark's gospel for our purposes. Why would Mark end his gospel this way? Why would you have a whole, why would he go through all the work of, of, of talking about Yeshua the way he does and then end this way? And what I want to suggest is that 
to a Roman listening to this gospel, to this euangelion, as they listen to it and they f- begin to be intrigued and, and fall in love with this Yeshua character, they are already a little nervous because your ultimate obligation and loyalty is to Caesar. And any loyalty besides Caesar is punishable by death in the Roman Empire. And yet as you hear about this Yeshua, this Nazarene, you become enthralled and you begin to become engaged by him. And if you at some point decide, as these Romans hopefully were going to do, to change loyalty from Caesar to this Jewish Messiah, the only attitude and the only perspective you would have is that of verse 8. Verse eight afraid for your life. Because that's exactly how Roman justice was, was carried out. And so I think Mark wants it to sit with those of a Roman mind to say, you're changing loyalty, and now your life is at stake. Welcome to the kingdom. Subversive. We'll get into Luke right after this. Welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So we leave Mark's gospel with this feeling of, of, of almost of fear, of bewilderment, um, because I believe that's exactly what Mark wanted his Roman listeners to feel. As you change loyalties, as you, you disavow Caesar as king and as God, and you turn to this Jewish Messiah named Yeshua, that's exactly the... It's a subversive gospel. It's very, very, as a matter of fact, I believe all the gospels are subversive in their own ways. But it's very, it's very against the powers that be of the day. It's against Rome. It's against Caesar himself, really, particularly. Not Romans as much as Caesar himself. Um, And I think it's just a brilliant way, if indeed this was Mark's intention. And, you know, these these other verses are, are not a part of the original. Um, you know, the earliest manuscripts have a mark. What an incredibly powerful way to end his gospel. It may leave us feeling like, oh, but wait, there's got to be more of the story. But for a Roman, they would understand exactly what Mark was saying and why he decided to leave his, his telling of the gospel in that. Because now your loyalty is to a new king and the rest of your life as a Roman you are going to be looking over your shoulder. You're, it's going to be spent in the shadows wondering, what about my family? What about my lifestyle? What about my livelihood? All these, these kinds of things. And that is the power of, of changing loyalty. It's, it's awesome. It's incredible. All right. So let's talk about the Gospel of Luke. So we've talked about how we have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And kind of we touched a little bit about kind of on the order they were written. Now, again, Marty Solomon brings up a really interesting conversation in that he believes uh, that Luke was actually the last gospel that was uh, that was written. He believes Luke's gospel is the latest gospel for uh, several reasons, and, and we'll talk about maybe one or two of them uh, in this episode. But I want to, to just read the first kind of introductory part of Luke that I actually call the introduction in my translation, and I want to see kind of what we can glean from this 
uh, because it sounds like a really complete introduction. So we want to see, again, reading with a new set of ears, a fresh set of ears, and really try to see who was Luke, who was he writing to, what was the purpose of, of his gospel account. So before we jump in, I want you to think about uh, what is your understanding of, of Luke as an author? Um, I've made this statement before and, uh, you know, make it often. I think that this is a this is a book of Israel's story. I believe not only the Tanakh, but also the, also the Bishkara Shah. It's the, this is Israel's story. Um, in a lot of ways, and I, I personally, personally for me, in, in, just, in just about every way, um, this is not a book to the world in so much as it is Israel's, a, a book to Israel and their role in the world and affecting the world. Um, and so, you know, my typical understanding is that all of the authors were Israelite or Jewish. And, you know, the keen Bible, Bible person would say, oh, yeah, but there's one, there's one Gentile author, and that's Luke. And I want to challenge that a little bit because I, uh, because of the way that Luke is written, and I, I want to reference a, a work that, again, I'm referring to, to Bema, uh, the Bema podcast a lot today, but um, so much of this, this stuff, they opened the door for me to go and, and search and read. Uh, there's a scholar by the name of M.D. Goulder. Um, from Harvard, and he has done, uh, I mean, just some monumentous work on on the book of Luke. Uh, he has a workout called the Evangelist's Calendar, the Evangelist's Calendar. Now, I looked this morning on Amazon for the Evangelist's Calendar, and there's one, there's one, you know, copy of it or one place you can find it, and it's like over 800 bucks. It's insane. It's out of print, of course. Um, but you can, depending on how you feel about copyright laws and all those things, uh, you can find a PDF version of it. Um, uh, and you can find it, I think, on Scribd or different places. You can find a PDF. And, and Goulder's work in the Evangelist calendar um, gives us a different thing, something to consider about the Gospel of Luke. Now, I, Goulder, from what I understand, is extremely well-respected and uh, has some tremendous, tremendous work uh, on Luke and on, on, on other, other, other things. But his, his opinion and his theory on the, 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 the person of Luke, the time of the writing of, of Luke's gospel account and all those things um, are not necessarily, they're respected but not necessarily well received or, or, or they're not, uh, you know, they haven't caught like wildfire, I guess, so to speak. And so Luke is, is in, after reading Goulder, uh, some of Goulder, because it's it's kind of a trudge if if you're if you're not real bright like I am. But after reading some of Goulder, especially the Evangelist Calendar, and there's a couple other volumes that I have that a great friend of mine gave me. Um, after reading some of this, I tend to side with Goulder in that Luke um, probably is a Gentile. He probably is a Roman, um, and yet we know that Luke is a doctor. Which is, if he's a doctor, that means that he is a, an Asclepian priest. Um, Asclepian is the uh, the Roman or Greek god of healing. Uh, there's some interesting myth stuff about Asclepian uh, that, like, he was trained by centaurs, and there's all this cool stuff. I mean, not cool like in a yeah, let's follow him way, but a cool like in an interesting way. Uh, and so it's believed that this Asclepian was was sent off by his his parents to be trained. Uh, in healing by the centaurs, which in Greek mythology are, are healing beings. Um, and so he, Asclepian, 
is this the the temple that you go to for healing uh, and for for you know physical miracles and things like that, and you offer to Asclepian. And so if Luke is a Roman or a Greek, uh, a Gentile or a pagan, um, and he is a physician, he is most likely a priest in the temples of Asclepia. Because generally in, in the, in, more in the Roman world maybe, but generally in the Greek world for sure, um, you didn't have like a doctor set up on the corner necessarily. Um, you didn't necessarily have like, you know, an all hours clinic you know, down one street and, you know, in the city square or whatever. Um, these, if you were a doctor, that meant you were a priest in the temple of the God who was known for healing or, or who healing was attributed to. And so there's much more of a religious, uh, much more of a cult kind of, um, you know, side to this than just it being an occupation as a, as a physician, right? So Luke is a, obviously a very capable and very smart guy. He's actually, you know, probably pretty brilliant. But from what we can tell from just the introduction that we'll read in a minute, there's some other stuff going on here. There's some other things going on that leads us to maybe think about um, Luke a little bit differently. So let's just jump into Luke chapter 1. We'll read just the introduction um, to here. So it says, many. Well, let's first stop and, and say the word many. Um, if, if Luke's gospel is third in kind of how, in the timeline that it came to be, if it was Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, or Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, um, there are not many gospels out. There's, there's two. Um, even, even if Luke is the last gospel to be written and John was written before him, that's three. That's, he would have probably said a few, you know, a few people have, 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 you know, undertaken, but he says, he says many. So, what does many mean? I don't, it means more than just one or two. So he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So let's stop here. So he says that many have undertaken to, to tell us about these things that were handed down by those who were, were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, according to Goulder, this phrase, servants of the word, in the Greek, here in, the, in Luke's gospel account, connects back to the Septuagint to a person known as a Hazan. And we spent some time talking about synagogue for, for a, a couple months ago, and we did not talk about the Hazan. The Chazan is, uh, is, is the one who, so in a synagogue, you may have one or two scrolls, maybe. Um, if you're in a small synagogue, you may have one scroll. In a larger synagogue, synagogue you, may have, you, know, you may have 10 or 12 scrolls. Very seldomly, from what we know of history, does a synagogue have the complete Torah uh, and you know, prophets and writings. Um, most scholars will even say by this time, the, um, the writings were not even necessarily canonized yet. So you had, you had the writings, but they weren't thought of as, as one complete body of, of Scripture. So you have these pieces and parts in different synagogues. Well, are you going to walk five miles to check, you know, if your synagogue has Leviticus, but you're going to walk five or ten miles to check one passage, uh, one verse, one word usage in, you know, in Deuteronomy? Or if you have numbers, are you going to go ten miles to the other side of the Sea of, of Galilee to, to check and see what Genesis, you know, 12 says about Abraham? I mean, you have these kinds of things that are going on. And so you have a Hazan 
who is one of those, when we talked about the, the early Jewish education system, he is one of these best of the best of the best, right? And the Hazan's job is to have, is to, to preserve the word. And so you go to the Hazan and you say, you know, you know, we have this scroll and this is what it says, but what, what does it say? You know, we have Exodus, but what does it say in, in Deuteronomy about this particular, you know, event? And the Hazan would be able to quote that to you verbatim from memory. And so these Hazanim are the, the servants of the word, are the, the, the keepers of the word, uh, ministers, some, some uh, translations might say, ministers of the word, servants of the word, right? And so this is, according to Gulder, that's, that's who Luke is talking about. So think about this. Luke, uh, this pagan or Gentile, right, Ascalopian priest, he is going around to these Hazanim and finding out what the accounts were. Because all of these, all of these, these Hazanim, all the synagogues, the major synagogues, they would have recorded the words of, of any messianic, uh, potential Messiah, messianic figure. Because they were all ready, right? They were looking, they were ready. They were ready for Rome to be pushed out and extinguished and, and Israel to be free again, to return to kind of the golden age of, of David Amelech. And, and they were looking for the Messiah. And so any Messianic candidate's words would have been recorded and preserved in the synagogues by the Hazanim. So this, so this pagan Ascalopian priest is going and defiling all these synagogues, you know, and being around all these. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense in, in a first century setting. So he says that they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So what Goulder's uh, argument is, is that Luke is actually probably Gentile pagan, you know, or grown up that way and worked that way, but he has since converted to Judaism. So what's important to remember is that, is that in, in the Jewish, you know, understanding in Jewish faith, when someone converts and is circumcised and takes on the yoke of Judaism, they are as Jewish as if they would been, have been born Jewish, as if they were, you know, biologically Jewish and had grown up in a Jewish home and had, you know, generations of, of, um, of Jewish lineage. They, you're as Jewish as the, as, as the, as the day a, uh, a biological Jewish person is born. And so Luke probably, according to Guler, are, you know, his argument is that Luke is probably following the disciples around He's in synagogue every week anyway, because now he's an observant Jew. Um, he would have gone through intense, intense uh, study, especially coming from his background. He would have gone through intense study and intense testing and, 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 and training in order to, to even be able to convert in the first place. It's not just a, you know, yeah, local conversion, you know, 24-7 conversion or, or 20 uh, 24-6 uh, conversion Sabbath uh, on your, in your local corner store. Just come in and we'll convert you and then you can be out the door and welcome into the Jewish faith. It's not like that. Um, it's very trying and, and, and it's a process. Even today, it's a process. It's a couple year process. And it would have been for Luke as well. So brilliant guy, super capable. And so what it sounds like, according to Goulder, is that he is actually going around to all the synagogues and talking to the Hazanim and saying, now, what did he say here? What do you have recorded here? What's going on here? Well, this is what Mark says. What do you say? Well, this is what Matthew says. What do you say? Et cetera, et cetera. And, and he is actually checking all of the events and all of the things that were fulfilled, as he said earlier uh, in the introduction. Uh, verse, verse 3, it says, With this in mind, 
since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So there's so much in just these these couple, couple of, of, uh, of verses. So first he says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, I too decided to write an orderly account. Now again, according to Goulder, orderly is, what, is not what's in the Greek. That this word usage is not orderly, it is ordered. That you might say, well, that's, that's the same thing. Maybe a better uh, word would be a sequenced, um, a sequenced account, an ordered account. Here's the problem that we run into. We think that Luke, uh, he he is he is putting things in chronological order. In other words, he's kind of cleaning up the other synoptic gospels and saying, like, yeah, Matthew's all over the place. You know, Mark is good, but he's all over the place. I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna come as a as a physician as an educated person. I'm gonna give you the details. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the the straight chronological details, and we think that Luke is more concerned about accuracy than anything else. And so, to our Western minds, when we read orderly, we think accurate chronologically. And Goulder pushes against that, and he says ordered or sequenced. That's going to matter um, here in a little bit. So let's move on. We'll talk about that just here in a second. But he says, um, I too decided to write an ordered or sequenced account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So um, this Theophilus character, who, who is this most excellent Theophilus? Well, most excellent, of course, denotes you know, that he's probably a, a person of status. Um, and it, does it make sense that Luke would write a gospel for one person. I mean, surely with the intent that maybe Theophilus would share that, especially if he is a person of of status and uh, you know of standing in the in the Roman world or in the community in the Greek world. Sure, I mean that would be the person you'd want to get a gospel to because they could get it out, right? Um, but think about this, and again, Bema, Bema podcast brings this up, and I think it's a brilliant kind of way to think about this. Our questions to ask, at least. Um, Theophilus is, is obviously a Greek word, right? Theophilos, a uh, friend of God. And so this could be a person. It absolutely could, you know, could be a person. Um, if it is a person um, and he is Greek, who are some other Greeks that loved God or are Greek-ish people that we talked about that loved God? The Herodians, right? The Herodians were, were Jewish, or I should say Jewish, but but you know live the greek lifestyle live the greco-roman lifestyle still jewish but really kind of you know blurred that line between culture and covenant and so this very what could very well could have been theophilus could have been uh named by jewish herodian jewish parents as friend of god you're going to give him a greek name because that's the way the empire is going and yet if you're jewish you want to preserve that jewish heritage and call him friend of god theophilus so he very well could have been a Jew, uh, a Herodian Jew. The other thing that Marty and Brent pick up in the Bema podcast is that this could be um, a general name, a general title. 
anyone who considers himself a friend of God, all of you Theophiluses out there, if you consider a friend of God, this gospel account is for you. So just a couple different options there. And, you know, not taking away that Theophilus was a guy and was a prominent man at that. Maybe, you know, very well could be. Um, so he says uh, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then he goes into the time of King Herod uh, of Judea in verse uh, 5. So I want to get to kind of the point of Goulder's work or the evangelist calendar, the book and the, the work of evangelist calendar in, in specific. So this idea of being ordered and Luke going and talking to all the Hazanim and all the synagogues, in, in the evangelist calendar, Goulder's argument is that Luke's goal is not accuracy at all. It's not chronological accuracy. Because when you, when you actually study Luke's gospel, it's actually all over the place. It's, it's not chronological at all. There are little things here and there. It jumps in and jumps out. Uh, you know, and just it's a it's a chronological mess in a lot of ways, and so to think that Luke is is order is is a writing and orderly as in the the terms of chronological and clean um, is not doesn't work. So what else could be going on here? And Goulder's argument is that no, actually, what Luke is doing is that he is discussing the events and the details with all of these synagogue uh, leaders, these chazanim. And, and these eyewitnesses and the, the people that were around him and saw him and touched him and beheld him because he is actually writing a companion to the yearly Parsha cycle. Now, I have never heard that before in my life until it came up on, on the Bema podcast and I went out and looked at Goulder's work. In the evangelist calendar, there is a pullout in the back. There's a several page pullout that's phenomenal where Goulder has gone through the gospel of Luke and he has tied each section of Luke, not the way it's necessarily divided in our English Bibles, but he's tied each section. He's made divisions in Luke that pertain to each parashat reading that we go through in the year. And so if you're just new to this or, or you know, you new to the terms parsha, So the parsha is the weekly Torah reading, right? That takes us through the Torah. We go through the Torah once every year. And then we have the Haftarah portion, which is the Gossah, which is the writings and the prophets, the Nevaim and the Ketuvim, which are, uh, go, we go through those every three years. So in one cycle, you complete all of Torah, and in, in three cycles, you complete all of the prophets. I hope that makes sense. And so Goulder's, Goulder's argument is that Luke is actually writing a companion of Yeshua's life, a companion volume to be read, maybe not in the proper synagogue service, but on Shabbat, whenever every Jewish family would have been going through reading, studying the Parsha, the Haftarah, uh, the Haftarah, this would have been a way to end, to, to include the life and teaching of Yeshua, the Messiah, into that weekly reading. And if you, if you can find it on PDF online somewhere and you look through the chart, just take your time. You have to read a lot to understand how Goulder got to this and how it all fits together. The calendars that he used and the different datings and different things. Uh, even the ancient cycles as opposed to maybe how they changed a little bit in, in, today. It is absolutely phenomenal that you can pick a portion of Mark for the Parsha for that week, or of Luke rather, for the Parsha for that week. And, and they line up. Now, there could be several reasons for this. If we think about it just kind of really common sense-wise, um, it, it could be Yeshua and his disciples are in synagogue every week, right? 
So wouldn't any teacher halfway worth the salt that week of that parasha that everybody's studying, wouldn't he be kind of talking about those things uh, and, and, you know, and, and kind of in, in building his ministry and his life around the things that are happening at those certain times? You have special readings for festivals. You have special readings for different things. It, so, yeah, it would make sense that like, oh, well, man, Yeshua's really, really hitting a lot on Abraham, you know, lately. This, you know, this is Parsha Lech Lecha. This is, this is where we've been studying in synagogue and, and what, what all of synagogue would be, you know, tuned into right now. And so it's phenomenal as you look at the chart and you go through and you kind of piece this stuff together, how brilliantly, I mean, it's not his chapter, his divisions are not necessarily always, you know, 100% correct, but it is absolutely incredible how the life and ministry of Yeshua speak to the weekly Parsha. Now, like I said, this, this theory is not really widely accepted. People who have critiqued Goulder's theory have set off the bat. It gets brilliant, and it and you know it's hard to find any fault with it. It just hasn't really kind of been uh, you know in, in, in absorbed into the kind of the mainstream acceptance. But if that's the case, Luke also, from a literary standpoint, uses a lot of um, a lot of Eastern uh, narrative form or uh, tactics. You know, writing writing. Uh, devices. He uses a lot of Eastern writing. There's his, his work is full of chiasms, which is something that we've talked about here in the, you know, especially in the Tanakh, full of chiasms and all these kinds of things. So Luke is this brilliant guy who I agree with Marty and Brent and, and actually Goulder and saying that he was probably a convert, a brilliant guy who said, you know what, if, if this guy Yeshua is the Messiah, then we need to make sure we're reading his teachings every week. And so Luke set out to write not an orderly, chronological, clean account, but to write an account that could be partnered with the weekly Parsha and Haftarah readings. So that's the Gospel of Luke. Really academic, I know, not a lot of deep stuff. We'll get into John next week. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. 